spinning out of control. The sky is set ablaze in all its red and gold. The temperature's rising and the wind is blowing hot. We gotta turn this ship around before we run aground. We gotta turn this ship around before we run aground. Welcome to Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM, streaming live at nhtalkradio.com, where you can also find our shows archived. And we're on Google and Stitcher and iTunes. We're all over the place. We're live and in color. I'm joined by Chris Ryan and brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. You you can join a tour and celebrate life at the Birches by calling 224-9111. Well, winter time is upon us here in beautiful downtown Concord, New Hampshire. The snow has come, the snow is gone, the snow comes again. It's an early winter. The squirrels are trying to fatten up. The birds are heading south. The dogs are rolling in the snow. And down in D.C., Nancy Pelosi looks like she has won the battle to become the Democratic caucus candidate for Speaker of the U.S. House. When I got to Washington as a fresh behind the ears freshman in 2006, as what I think of as an accidental congressman, uh, I did a little bit of politicking and was elected president of the freshman class and worked pretty closely with Nancy Pelosi. And I was very proud to call her Madam Speaker. She was historically the first female speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. And now, lo, these many years later, she wants to be the speaker of the U.S. House again. Now, two years ago when she ran for speaker inside the Democratic caucus, there was significant opposition raised to her candidacy. As I recall, there were candidates who actively ran against her, and she received in the caucus only about 134 votes. But ultimately, the Democrats rallied around her on the floor. And of course, she didn't get to be speaker because... The Democrats weren't in control of the House. They didn't have that many Democrats. But now the Democrats are going to take the majority. And in January, the question on everyone's lips who follows doings in the U.S. House is, will those who opposed Nancy Pelosi inside the caucus, where she got 203 votes and she needs 218 votes to be elected the next Speaker of the House, will those who opposed her, those who wrote a letter uh, who opposed her, those who reluctantly voted for her, will they come around and vote for her when it gets to the floor of the House? And will she get yes. any Republicans? The answer is yes. Will she get some Republicans? No, just the, fir- the first ones, yes. You're and sure? she might get a couple of Republicans. So what's happened in the caucus is there are members who told their constituents that they would vote against Nancy Pelosi because... Let's face it, folks, there's been Pelosi fatigue in the general public. The Republicans have so vilified this 
master strategist, this master fundraiser, this long-serving 78-year-old liberal from California. The Republicans have so demonized her that they use her as the devil incarnate in their advertising um, campaign after campaign. Yet, in terms of her effectiveness as Speaker of the House, I can tell you that had she not been the Speaker, had she not been such a master, the Affordable Care Act never would have been passed. It would have gone down in the dust. And she, I won't say single-handedly, but had a huge, huge hand in rescuing um, the Affordable Care Act, which today people appreciate. Back then, nobody appreciated it. And they Never elected me to set this U.S. Senate in large part because I'd voted to give people health care. Fancy that. But Nancy Pelosi is a strategist and a fundraiser. Um, a lot of people think she's aged out of the job and say it's time for a change. And I said the same thing myself, that it's time to present a new face to the American public. But let's now think about where we are. We have two years to go before a really important presidential Just one election. thing on Pelosi before we move on. I think that a large degree of, as you described it, Pelosi fatigue is establishment fatigue. But what's interesting is that um, you know Pelosi draws you know this ire, while Mitch McConnell, not so much. Maybe it's because he's so bland and um, you know that, that he doesn't draw the type of attention. I don't know, and is not the lightning rod. But it's interesting to me that you know, McConnell is just like Pelosi, as establishment as you can get in terms of um, the money side of, of politics, which is the biggest concern I think that a lot of progressives have is the relationship she has with Wall Street and with big money. Whoa, but whoa, but whoa. McConnell is just as establishment, Chris, but we don't see the big push. Chris Ryan, this is Mitch McConnell. I'm happy to visit with you here with my mouth full of marbles as as it they always are. My cheeks are bulging with marbles when I talk because you can see my jowls shake and my lower part of my mouth move, but nothing else moves. My beady little eyes bounce back and forth, and I say really bland amounts of nothing, kind of like grits, you know, because I'm from Kentucky. And I think that one of the reasons I keep getting elected uh, time after time is because, number one, I don't say anything. I just do bad things. Number two, I'm from Kentucky, not California. And everybody knows that you're an extreme left-wing liberal radical from California, where I am a moderate conservative from Kentucky, and I also happen to be a white male. Now, I don't know what you might think about that, but I'm uh, I'm pretty proud of my maleship, and, and I think that has a lot to do with why nobody bugs me and they go after Nancy Pelosi. I mean, she makes an easy target. She wears those pantsuits. She gets her hair done every day. She's rich as creases. Not to say that I'm doing badly. I'm doing pretty well. Me and my wife Joan Chu. I mean, we, we you know we're do, we're doing okay. We're 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 hanging in there in the millionaire bracket. But but I'm a white man from Kentucky. That makes it a lot easier for me to talk with marbles in my mouth and just nobody comes after me. Yeah. <laughs> Chris Ryan is dumbfounded, ladies and gentlemen. I have was that I, English? What I, was that? I don't. I, even, have, I didn't understand I, anything you I said. I have dumbfounded Chris Ryan, which is very difficult to do. <laughs> he is an experienced journalist, and he knows how to ask. I questions. feel like I need an interpreter. No, I don't need no interpreter. You can hear me talk from Kentucky. So the answer is that uh, a female progressive firebrand, which she was for many many years, uh, leading the uh, you know liberal progressive. 
voice in the U.S. Congress, the first woman speaker, um, there very well could be an element of sexism in all this. No, I think that that's fair. I think that um, because, again, you put the two things side by side, I think that you can talk about sexism. I think the other piece that you mentioned is that she is a progressive. She is a you know, to the wing, to the outside of the mainstream of American thinking, while Mitch McConnell is you know a very uh, bland, moderate conservative and is not of the um, same type of uh, thinking of, you know, say, a Ted Cruz or a Rand Paul. He's not a firebrand. Um, so I think that those two things, I don't know which is more significant and how I kind of break up the pie, but um, I think that both of those have, have something to, uh, to do. So, so you combine establishment fatigue with the fact that we are seeing a generational change in leadership in the House with a lot of new young people uh, coming into office, um, and you get some mutterings in the Democratic caucus. The point I was making before um, you conveniently interrupted me, however, was that with two years to go before what could be a momentous— I didn't think you were going to get back to it. A momentous election um, dealing with uh, the presidential election in 2020. Uh, now is the time, many Democrats are now saying, for experienced strategic leadership who knows how the game is played, who can help the fresh members of Congress uh, learn the ropes and navigate, because I'll tell you, it is a whole new eye-opening experience when you actually get to Congress and try to figure out how to get anything done, and you find out pretty quickly where the power centers are. And the power centers that... Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer uh, and Jim Clyburn have 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 developed are real, and uh, the, a lot of the fresh members of Congress don't get that until they get there and they see how the place really runs. And if they want to get anything done, they're going to have to deal with the power center. So the the revolution or the revolt against Nancy never seemed to really take off. There was a letter signed, including uh, there was opposition. My good friend Ed Perlmutter was quoted as saying, it's time for a change. Ed Perlmutter and I uh, came went into Congress together in 2006. He now has been there uh, since then after thinking about running for governor and doing other things. But he's been one of the leading voices of the revolt. But all they said was it's time for a change. And in the Democratic caucus, Nobody ran against Nancy Pelosi. What does that tell us? It tells you that uh, there's not a lot of organization and that, um, you know, there's not a lot of individuals who are willing to put their neck on the line. Um, you know, I, I was surprised that there was not an individual who uh, emerged as a clear alternative. But it seemed like, you know, even throughout the um, the election process, it was talking about a, can a candidate or an individual in the abstract as opposed to a real human being. So those who were saying they were going to oppose Nancy Pelosi didn't necessarily think everything th through. I mean, Chris, Chris Pappas, I thought, was very strategic in his um, answering of the question about Pelosi throughout the course of the um, process, and he ended up supporting uh, Pelosi. And I don't think that a lot of other Annie Custer supported Pelosi. Yes, and so, she was expected to. But I thought that Pappas was kind of a he was. Tr I thought that Pappas was truly considering whether or not he was going to do so. And if a alternative had emerged that he found was viable 
and could have actually had success, he may have supported them. I'll tell you, down in Washington, D.C., you cross Nancy Pelosi at your peril. I, I remember saying to myself that one of the most challenging moments I thought I'd ever face in Congress was that first time Nancy Pelosi put her hand on my shoulder and said, Paul, this is what I want you to do. And in fact, very shortly after I got there, that's exactly what happened because there was a uh, vote in the caucus uh, that involved Jack Murtha, the now deceased Pennsylvania uh, Democrat, and Steny Hoyer about who was going to be uh, number two. Um, Nancy favored Jack Murtha, and a lot of the people who had helped me in Massachusetts, um, uh, Mike Capuano, now no longer there, uh, were also favored Jack Murtha. I had made a commitment to Steny Hoyer because I thought that he was a smart, moderate, uh, moderate guy who was in keep, you know, would stand in good stead in terms of the principles and values I represented from New Hampshire. But sure enough, in the caucus, Nancy and a group of people came by. She put her hand on my shoulder and said, Paul, I'm hoping that you'll stand with me and my candidate, Jack Murtha. And I had to say with my heart in my throat, because I could see my entire congressional career passing or falling, uh, falling, falling away, as I said it, Madam Speaker, I uh, appreciate that, uh, and I've given this great consideration. I've pledged my support to Steny Hoyer, and I can't go back on my word um, uh, because uh, that's just not how I'm going to – I can't be known as somebody who'd go back on his word, and that's my, my word is my bond. What happened to you after that? Well, I don't think I was ever one of her favorites. I mean, I, I, I didn't get punished, but I wasn't one of her favorites. I, I, I did get close to Steny Hoyer, and uh, that, you know, that was effective. There was, he, he provided a lot more help uh, to me in terms of getting legislation that I was interested in passed uh, than uh, I got from Nancy. I just never, um, she has a very, very, very long uh, memory uh, and she is a, p- a powerful, powerful person. Right. And again, though, I think that the problem that exists right now is that there has been a clear message sent in the last two elections uh, by voters, and that is that they want something new and that they want new leadership and they want uh, individuals to to rise. And I feel that it's problematic for um, for Democrats. But again, there's only one other option. That's the Republican Party. And that's not a very that's good one. That's not going to be a good one. So, <laughs> so I uh, listen, I predict when they get to the floor, a lot of the Democrats, uh, even those who voted no, uh, will take a picture of their secret ballot and put it up on social media to be able to say to their constituents, see, we voted no. But now, given the choice, we are unifying behind Nancy Pelosi when this comes to the floor. And she will be the next Speaker of the House of the United States representatives. That's my prediction, and it's not an overly bold No, I don't think there's any question, because there is no alternative. Um, You know, the alternative is to put a Republican in charge in Kevin McCarthy. Not going to happen. So, I mean... it's obviously a tough spot for you know Democrats who are opposed to Pelosi and made pledges to their voters, um, but they've been left of no options because of the fact that there was no alternative. Well, there's no alternative. We're going to see Nancy Pelosi uh, for the second time around as the Speaker of the U.S. House. Uh, that'll happen in January, and uh, we'll begin to hold the Trump administration accountable for misdeeds 
and crookery. This is Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM, joined by Chris Ryan, brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. You can join a tour or celebrate life at the Birches by calling 224-9111. Now don't go away, folks. We've been talking about new leadership, and we'll be back to have a discussion with Colin Van Ostern, who is running for Secretary of State of New Hampshire, a position that has been held by the incumbent Bill Gardner for 40 years. We'll be back after this. Welcome back to Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM, streaming live over the internet, archived at ConcordNewsRadio.com, and still coming to you from our studios deep beneath the earth on Reddington Road, where we own the world's largest pothole. Be careful if you come, you'll need a Sherman tank. And we are brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. Join a tour. Celebrate life at the Birches. Call 224-9111. And I'm very pleased to welcome to Off the Record our guest, Colin Van Ostern. Colin, welcome to Off the Record. Thanks so much. Colin Van Ostern is a supremely accomplished person. Among other things, he was the Democratic candidate for governor in 2016. He narrowly lost to the current occupant of Concord's corner office. Uh, He has been an executive counselor of long and outstanding service to the state. And what most people don't know, but I do, is that Colin Van Ostern is secretly one of the world's great drummers. He played his way through college and graduate school. He doesn't talk much about it. It's the thing I'm most interested about. Uh, But we're going to put that aside because Colin... Uh, is has undertaken a new challenge. He is running for Secretary of State. Colin, what is this about? We've had the longest-running Secretary of State in human history uh, in the current occupant of that office, Bill Gardner. What's this about? Why are you doing this? And uh, what do we gain from a different Secretary of State? Well, first, let me say quite critically that uh, I know how the fact checkers are. uh, And some of what you said in your your introduction just is not true. It is true that I drum or that I did. I'm not sure anyone would have ever described me as a great drummer. And I I think that truth in advertising is important. So let me just start there. I played the drums. I played the the drums well. There's a difference. Um, I had a lot of fun doing it, which is what's what's important. Uh, so to the issue of the day, uh, I think there's a huge opportunity. And honestly, in recent years, I think it's been kind of an open secret in Concord that there's a need for modernization of our Secretary of State's office, um, that we could have some better cooperation with local and town officials, especially on things like when you have a blizzard in the middle of town meeting day. Uh, and finally, that we need to stop what's been a pretty controversial political agenda around restricting the rights of eligible voters. Uh, and all of that is happening, let's be honest, under uh, you know a president who is 
saying things that are not true to the American people about our elections and who voted in them and who won and who didn't. Um, and I think it's very important in 2018 that we elect a new secretary of state who's going to modernize the office and respect local control and do a better job of standing up for election rights. So let's go back to some basics. Um, what does the secretary of state do? What's, what's the job? Why does it matter? Well, the easiest way to think about this job is quite literally. It's the secretary of our state government. So when I was an executive counselor for four years, we would meet and review state contracts and vote on appointments. And we had someone from the secretary of state's office there as our secretary. Uh, This sounds boring, but it's an example of the sort of thing that matters a lot. Uh, When I started on the executive council, Uh, not only were we getting our contracts that we would vote on 10 or 20,000 pages worth dropped off by a state trooper on Friday afternoon and you voted on them the next Wednesday, but they weren't online in the same form that the counselors who would be voting on them were, which means members of the public couldn't even really navigate through the votes that were going to be upcoming. And so that's a, a simple example of the sort of thing that I worked hard to change. And I think it's important. One of the reasons that we have lost trust in our government is because there's a lack of transparency and because consumers expect certain things today in 2018 that they're just not getting from our government. Uh, So when you need to file a new business, get a trade name, get your certificate of good standing from the state, these sorts of things, you shouldn't have to navigate through a website that looked like your bank did in 1998. Uh, And that sort of basic function of government is vitally important. Uh, this The office also manages our corporate securities division, it manages our archives, and it manages the administration of elections. Uh, and lately it has uh, taken a very proactive role in lobbying the legislature on behalf of a variety of new bills or laws that make it harder for a lot of people who are eligible voters to register to vote. So uh, it's actually eye-opening to think about all the ways that the Secretary of State affects life in the Granite State. I I hadn't, frankly, put it all together in that concise way. I mean, I've, I've registered on a lot of businesses and trade names and dealt with the Secretary of State that way and have always marveled at how primitive uh, the interface was for me to do fairly simple things. As you said, it looks like, you know, a bank a bank website at the dawn of the computing age. Uh, it's not particularly user-friendly, although because I'm brilliant, I've been able to navigate it without a problem, but that's only because <laughs> I've been using computers since the dawn of the computing age. But Well, uh, part of the problem, if you think about it, when you don't have competition, things get stagnant. And that's the, you know, if there only was one bank in the world that you could ever use, they probably wouldn't have a very good website either. No one has even competed for this job in a serious way since 1984. 1984? That was the last time there was a competitive election for Secretary of State. I mean, that must have been, it must have figured prominently in Aldous Huxley's book, uh, <laughs> 1984. An, an, an auspicious year. An, an auspicious, auspicious year. An inauspicious year. Um, I mean, so Bill, Bill, the current occupant, Bill Gardner, has has been there for, wait, is that 84, 94, 04, 14? Wait, that's more than 30 years. Well, that was the last time someone seriously challenged him. I see. He was elected in 76. Wait, in 1976. Which was three years before I was born. 
Um, that's <laughs> a long time. So he's seen he's seen many many seasons come come and go. Sure, and he's done great service to the people of New Hampshire in various parts of his job over the years. You know, uh, there's a un. This is not a traditional political campaign, right? We're not going to be running TV ads. We're not going to be doing parades, and that you won't see yard signs up. Come around on, Concord. if you don't run TV ads, <laughs> I'm sorry. how I'm are sorry. we? How are we going to? What are we going to complain about? But uh, you know, we're also not going to criticize the motive or the character of the guy I'm running against. He has adopted specific policy positions and procedures that I think are wrong for the state. Uh, and I think the reason we have elections is so that our incoming lawmakers can take a look at our priorities and make a decision which they think is more reflective of what will be a well-run state government. And I've talked to, you know, I talked to a Democratic state rep two days ago who said he set up an LLC last year and it gave him more grief than he ever would have liked. And I talked to a Republican state rep the week before who said he's a moderator in his local town. And the last thing they need is a state bureaucrat telling him that in the middle of a blizzard, they can't move town meeting day if that's what they've done in previous years. And there hasn't been a change in the law. Uh, so I think that there is a lot of openness to change. Uh, I, you know, I think there also will be resistance to it. And that's part of the process. And I've got thick skin and I'm independent and I don't mind, you know, taking the arrows sometimes. Uh, but I think that's what we'll need in our next secretary of state. So this is a statewide election. So it's not on the ballot. It is a statewide office and it will be elected by the incoming legislature. Well, that makes this for a very interesting campaign because rather than um, it sounds like what you need to do in a political sense, in a process sense, is make sure the issue is and the issues are um, uh, on the top of the public's consciousness so that they make sure to talk about it with their candidates, probably both Democrats and Republicans, so that whoever comes in and then elects the secretary of state has in mind the need for change. So um, it's truly a a very, very different kind of animal than other elections, which makes it quite fascinating because it sounds to me like it's a totally bipartisan effort. Um, There is – there are really – not there. I mean, there are some issues which have taken a partisan cast, and we can talk about them in terms of voting and voting suppression, and 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 those uh, those issues, and even the issues of voter fraud, which have been cast as kind of political issues. But in terms of your election uh, and your approach to the campaign, you've got to really appeal to the citizens and ask them to appeal to the candidates uh, without even knowing who's going to get elected. Well, that's true. That makes it a little harder for us. It's probably one of the reasons that there hasn't been change in 42 years. Um, But I'm really excited about it because I think it's important. Uh, So I'll give you an example. You know, the sorts of things I mentioned, we're not going to be, you know, in parades and running TV ads. I'm not going to be going around the state with a big briefcase full of checks, handing them out to people running for office. But I am going to be focused on grassroots organizing, raising awareness on issues. And I'll give you an example. In 2016, none of the major parties in New Hampshire had anything in their platform in opposition to partisan gerrymandering. This is where, you know, every 10 years, lawmakers get together and basically draw the lines of the districts in order to protect themselves or whichever party is in power. Which districts? Uh, Districts for state Senate, state House, executive council and Congress. Um, And I represented a district that was deeply gerrymandered. I represented a squiggly, dragon-looking district that went everywhere from the 
Vermont and Massachusetts border all the way across the state to Rochester and, and Durham and Dover. It was crazy. Uh, one of the efforts we're working on right now is trying to build grassroots support to urge the political parties to adopt an anti-gerrymandering plank in their platform. And I think we've got a decent chance that one or two, probably not all three, but maybe we're going to try, that parties will, in 2018, for the first time ever, say that they are opposed to partisan gerrymandering. There's a better way to do this. We can do it with more independent structure. So it's not just political manipulation. And so that we're not stifling the the voice of the people. And if we can do that, if we can get those platform planks inserted for the first time or help the grassroots organizers who are doing that work, that's the beginning of how you bring change. Uh, And it also will educate people on the issues. It'll get more lawmakers engaged in some of these issues of free and fair elections. And then when they're elected, not only are the voters more educated about it, but hopefully they'll elect lawmakers who share that, what I think is a nonpartisan platform that we're pushing. It, gerrymandering is is clearly an important issue nationally, and it's important in every state. Um, the I, I think you probably know the statistics better than I do, but let's just say over the past thirty years, have there been mostly Republican majorities in our uh, state house? Yes, and. That probably means that over the past 30 years, most of the lines that have been drawn for districts have been the result of work by Republican majorities seeking to protect their Republican majority. So this is true, but we should also be honest about it because you and I have both been in politics and Democrats have done this in other states, too. Absolutely. I I thought so. Martin O'Malley, who was in New Hampshire this week, uh, wrote an op ed that I thought was uniquely honest He said when he was governor of Maryland, he signed into law a map that got rid of a Republican congressional district and added a Democrat. And he knew what he was doing at the time. And the Democrats that controlled the legislature in Maryland knew what they were doing. The only way you bring change is not trust that the party in power will somehow become righteous and not greedy. It's that when you're not in power, you make clear what your values are and make it clear to the voters what you're going to do. And then, you know, if a different party controls the House or the Senate next fall, we'll have, you know, got everyone on the record saying they're in favor of of an independent redistricting commission or opposing partisan gerrymandering. We've got to do better. And throughout our country's history, there have been times of corruption by the Democratic Party. There have been times of corruption by the Republican Party. It's usually whoever's in power is the one that's most corrupt. Power Uh, corrupts. (laughs) It does. And I think this office is one that has a responsibility that is not to the political parties. It is to the people. It's a great New Hampshire tradition. By the way, it's why we have the first in the nation primary. We wrenched it out of the convention back rooms and put it in the voting booth before any other state did. And that independent-minded citizenry, we're the heart of democracy. We should fight for that. And we need a secretary of state who's going to be strong and fighting for it, too. I'm talking with Colin Van Ostern here on Off the Record. Uh, we will be back after a short break. We're brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. Join a tour. Celebrate life at the Birches. Call 224-9111. Don't go away. We'll be back after a short message. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM, streaming live over the Internet Archive at ConcordNewsRadio.com, coming to you from our bunker deep beneath the earth, safely ensconced on Reddington Road, right here in Concord, New Hampshire. We're talking with Colin Van Ostrom, who's running for Secretary of State 
of New Hampshire. We're brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. Join a tour. Celebrate life at the Birches. Call 224-9111. Well, Colin, we touched on the important issues of gerrymandering. I want to turn our attention for a moment to another issue that really has been in the news a lot, and that is the issue of voter fraud, what to do about it, whether it exists why it um, has been become such a topic. And I think it's fair to explore the role of the current Secretary of State um, in that entire debate. Um, uh, we will fondly recall that in uh, the run-up to the 2016 election uh, for governor, our current governor, Chris Sununu, famously claimed that there were thousands of voters being bussed in from Massachusetts to illegally vote in our New Hampshire election. That cry was heard by a candidate for the presidency on the Republican side. His name, though I dare to mention it, um, well, I won't even say his name, but he's now the current occupant of the White House. I fondly call him the Carrot Top Cantaloupe. And among the fake news and lies and distortions that he has peddled to a gullible citizenry uh, has been this notion of voter fraud. And he impaneled a commission. And the commission was going to examine voter fraud nationally. Now, most of us in New Hampshire don't believe there's voter fraud in New Hampshire, and the statistics seem to bear that out. But our current Secretary of State said that he would join President Trump's voter fraud commission, and he said that he was going to essentially be a voice of reason. What was wrong with that? And, and, and why, is this, why is this an issue? What's going on? Well, what's going on is a good question, so let's start with the facts. Uh, one individual has been convicted of out-of-state voting in New Hampshire in the last decade. That's out of about 6 million votes cast. Um, so uh, it's not true to say that it has never happened. It's not true to say it's widespread. And it's definitely not true to say folks are being bussed over the border from Massachusetts to vote here. So you have to ask why are some of our most senior elected leaders are saying things that are false. Uh, and the reason is because they're trying to assert an agenda that makes it harder for eligible voters, uh, college students, senior citizens, people who've moved recently to vote. Uh, imagine for a sec that, you know, democracy is one of our most precious assets. Imagine we were running a bank instead of running an election. And someone told you that it won't. I, wi I wish I was running a bank. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, because as Willie Sutton said, that's where the money is. So. And, and maybe people would be more rational about this. Uh, and imagine someone had said, look, you know, out of the uh, out of the millions of transactions of the past year, somebody once did try to rob a bank. Uh, so the answer would not be, well, let's not have locks on the doors. Of course, you'd have locks on the doors. We have to run secure elections. But what they're trying to do now is put, you know, guards out front with guns and barking dogs. And they're saying you can't even walk on the block unless you have a current driver's license from that state. Meanwhile, the back door is wide open. Uh, we have some of the most insecure online s storage of our voter files in New Hampshire of any state in the country. Uh, and, and so you have to wonder why we're leaving the back door wide open. Our state has refused to even cooperate with the U.S. Department of Homeland Security to examine or harden 
how we are storing our voter file. Uh, we are participating in a cross-check partisan system that where basically they compare across different states. It has a 99% error rate. I've had Republican town clerks tell me they've had hundreds of voters flagged on their voter, voter file and been told to remove them from the rolls, and they checked and they were wrong. So the back door is wide open, and yet we're putting more and more barriers on the front door. I think we need to look at this not from a partisan political angle that the president and others are pushing, but we need to look at it the way you would if you were running any other business, which is secure what's not secure right now and make sure you're still accessible to your customers. Uh, and that is how we should treat our elections. And that's the approach that I would take as secretary of state. What happened with the commission? Well, they were disbanded because it was kind of a political joke and everyone knew that. Uh, they met here in New Hampshire. You know, I mentioned earlier, I'm not going to question Bill Gardner's motives or his character. Uh, I think he probably thought he was trying to help. Uh, but, you know, essentially what happened was there was partisan gasoline poured on a political fire. And there was all this discussion that was really just based on a political agenda, not based on data. Uh, and I think that made the problem worse. It made people have less faith in our elections rather than more. So uh, he actually was sued. To, he wanted to turn our voter data over to the Trump Voter Fraud Commission. I think it was the ACLU sued. Then the commission was disbanded. And then uh, he ended up having to turn over the, the same data. There was a, a mess up along the way where some of the voter rolls that were being shared had handwritten notes with private information of individuals who, for example, might not want all of their address available if they've been stalked before. Uh, you know, there are these details that may seem small out of a million voters, but uh, for individuals, they're incredibly important. So didn't I just read in the news, because I do read the news, that uh, Secretary of State Gardner just released yes. all the files that he was going to turn over to the defunct, phony Voter Fraud Commission? Well, essentially, they prepared the files, and then reporters... Uh, being what they are, which is wanting to get to the bottom of things, uh, file the right to know request saying, OK, show us the files that you prepared and that you were planning to turn over. And so they they did. They turned those files over to the press. Uh, I, as all of this was happening, we were refusing as a state to, to cooperate with the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, we were making it harder. And, and the Secretary of State's office was testifying in favor of new laws that restrict eligible voters' rights to register to vote. Um, I just think this is a, a set of misplaced priorities. I mean, there are things we could be doing. What I hear from local town officials is, uh, A, we need to respect their authority more when it comes to town meetings, non-state elections. So if there's a blizzard that they can make a smart decision to, you know, uh, keep people safe in their town and still have decent voter turnout by maybe moving the town election a week or two if they need to. Uh, B, that we should look at ways to reduce lines. Some voting locations in New Hampshire get pretty long lines on Election Day, and some folks show up, see all the cars, see the lines, and they turn around and leave. Uh, that is a real loss. And we can use things like electronic voter checklists. This is not where it's networked or you know connected to the Internet, but instead of having you know A through L and M through T or whatever it is, uh, you know, instead of having three lines that move slowly, you can have one line that moves fast. It's not complicated. Little things like that can make everyone's lives easier. And yet we are not doing those things because we're pursuing a, a one-sided controversial political agenda instead. So for the second year in a row, we have experienced controversy around the scheduling of town elections because blizzards have interrupted town meetings. And after uh, the first time, and coming up for this year, 
uh, the Secretary of State essentially asserted his statewide authority to say basically, I am the God when it comes to deciding whether a town meeting should or should not be held. I Everybody answers to me. I'm the one who dictates when town meetings happen. Um, the town, the clerks have no ability to reschedule town meetings. And in fact, the attorney general's office sent a strongly worded threatening letter uh, to one town clerk who decided anyway to, 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 to move the date because, as she said, uh, I'm not going to endanger the citizens who live in my town by making them come out for these um, town elections. Um, we can move. We can move the date. She did, and and uh, the the hullabaloo, um, the hullabaloo continues. Um, uh, as you say, the town clerks, um, I think rightly, uh, want some local control over their local elections, um, and there seems to be no good reason why the Secretary of State can't co- help coordinate that without impeding that kind of local control, because after all. Local control is the thing that New Hampshire's been all about. Um, uh, so, so that strikes me as a kind of interesting twist of thinking on the part of the current occupant of the office. Um, and I think of perhaps the greatest concern, and something we began to touch on, is the attempts to suppress voting in New Hampshire. Um, New Hampshire is um, perhaps on the leading edge of a national effort uh, by, uh, frankly, um, I won't say shadowy, but but Republican-dominated, Republican control, and Republican-moneyed groups who want to uh, squeeze the ability of people to go out and vote because they believe that if they suppress the vote, let's say of college students in particular, um, who tend to vote uh, a little more on the progressive side of things, uh, that they will do better. It's a partisan attempt, a national partisan attempt to suppress vote. The vote that has has resulted in um, restrictions on the Voting Rights Act nationally it's, uh, and other kinds of measures, including the measures that New Hampshire uh, legislators in the, in the past session put forward to restrict the vote. Um, why would a secretary of state, why would a secretary of state want to support restricting the ability of anyone to vote in New Hampshire? Is it because um, uh, you really buy into this notion that it's the only way to control voter fraud when, as we've discussed, uh, there really is not a serious problem with voter fraud in New Hampshire? Um, uh, Why would anybody want to do that? Well, I don't know. (laughs) I think the irony is I don't think it's going to work the best way I know to get a college student to do anything is to tell them that a bunch of old people in power don't want them to do it. Well, I mean, so, and you work at a college. There may be some unintended consequences going on here. Um, but I think the problem is when you change our laws to make them more restrictive and create more bureaucracy and red tape, uh, that can have a lot of unintended harmful consequences, too. I, I had to get a, a new driver's license last summer. It took me two trips and two hours in order to do that. Life has enough bureaucracy and red tape already. Trying to add it to something which is our most fundamental constitutional right 
Uh, I do not think that that is, I don't think it should be a partisan issue. I think that that is an issue that all Americans should be standing up for. Um, and, and it's interesting because the, the first of the two issues you just asked about, the town meeting snow day thing, because that isn't a national agenda, a national political agenda that's being pushed on us the way efforts to restrict voting registration for eligible voters is, uh, it's a genuine, true New Hampshire nonpartisan issue. Uh, and overwhelmingly, I have heard from uh, town clerks, city clerks uh, who saw this happen in neighboring towns. I've heard from local selectmen and, and others. You know, they recognize that having some level of local influence over town elections is important, that it probably makes more sense than someone in Concord making weather decisions for the entire state. I mean, many of us have kids in schools. We understand that, you know, what happens in Nashua might not be the same thing as what happens in, you know, Errol, New Hampshire. Uh, and so overwhelmingly across party lines, folks have come out and said, look, you, you shouldn't be so rigid and refuse to cooperate with towns that need to make smart public safety decisions for their own communities, especially considering this has happened before and especially considering the law is at best ambiguous on this. A year ago, this happened on town meeting day and everyone said, oh, this is an amazing coincidence. Can't never happen again. You know, and, and shame on all of us a little bit for not anticipating that and fixing it first. I mean, it's New Hampshire. We, it snows in April. The, but it snows in March. When it happened the second year in a row and no one in power had figured out how to fix this. And, and we had folks like in Londonderry, a town that has a town manager who uh, he, like me, ran for governor a couple of years ago. He was a Republican when he ran. Uh, he and I probably don't see eye to eye on some issues, but he went online and said, this is ridiculous that the state is telling us we can't move. You know, we had thousands fewer people show up than when we did move last year uh, because, you know, the law hasn't changed, but many towns did move last year and they were just told they couldn't this year. To me, when you see opportunities like that where there's common ground, where people, regardless of party lines, are agreeing based on what's right for their community, that that is the sort of thing you should really rally around as a state and try to respect. Because there are so many things in our lives that are too po politicized and polarized and partisan enough. Let's find the things we can agree on and, and try to make some change and cooperate better. And the fact that that isn't what's been happening and that's not the way the Secretary of State's office has operated, I think shows that there's a better way. Uh, our law is, like I said, ambiguous at best. There is a clear law, 40-3, that states in statute that a town moderator can move a voting day because of a weather condition. There are other laws that have conflicting language with that. So at minimum, we could be more cooperative with the towns. But, but if nothing else, let's try to change the law and make it more clear for people. And that's what I would support. We've been talking with Colin Van Ostern here on Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM, streaming live over the Internet, archived at ConcordNewsRadio.com. Colin, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on today. Folks, we're brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. Join a tour, celebrate life at the Birches. Call 224-9111. Don't go away. We'll be back after a short break to wrap up this edition of Off the Record with... Welcome back to Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM, streaming live over the Internet at nhtalkradio.com. 
We are also podcasted Google and Apple iTunes and Stitcher. We're brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's or dementia or other forms of memory impairment. You can join a tour and celebrate life at the Birches calling 224-9111. Well, what a week in politics it's been. We talked about... The Nancy Pelosi conundrum for Democrats. While many Democrats are clamoring for change and new faces, Nancy Pelosi is now poised to become the Speaker of the United States House once again. The first female to hold that position and certainly the first female to hold the position probably twice. And we had a great talk with Colin Van Ostern, who is running to modernize the office of the New Hampshire Secretary of State and what has become a heated political battle for the first time in decades. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXL. Thanks to our great sponsor, the Birches at Concord. Thanks to you all for listening. You can binge listen at nhtalkradio.com. We'll be back next week with more Off the Record with Paul Hodes. <laughs>